Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. In the May issue of the magazine, poet and novelist Susanna Schauler writes about darkness. From its role in myth-making and religion to its biological impact, the absence of light, though frightening, is essential to humanity. Yet light pollution, cell phones, and the societal pressure to always be on, working or playing, poses serious risks to our overall well-being. In this episode of the podcast, Schauler joins me to discuss her nighttime journey into Grasslands National Park, the darkest place in Canada. We also delve into the unexpected revelations that darkness can offer, what humanity stands to gain by embracing the unknown, and her personal choice to focus on the philosophical side of the subject and to go weird. Turn down your brightness and enjoy. So... This, this piece ranges impressively over a vast swath of creation myths and ancient texts and its exploration of the many cultural and existential meanings that have been given to light and dark. So how does one even start researching something that's so perennial and universal without getting overwhelmed by it? Right. Well, I mean, the answer is I did get overwhelmed by it, <laughs> to be honest. and. Yeah, I got extremely overwhelmed by it. And there were a lot of points along the way where I was following research paths and encountering things that seemed completely crucial and like it couldn't possibly not wind up in the piece. And those things don't actually even wind up in the piece in the end. So at some point along the way, like I had to just kind of reframe a little bit like what my goals were <laughs> like that the goal that the goal is not to be comprehensive or, you know, to cover every point in human history at which light and dark have been meaningfully or existentially addressed. It at a certain point I had to kind of actually this is something my husband said to me while I was writing it because I was like really down the rabbit hole and was like, it'll never fit. <laughs> it's too much. And he was like, yeah, no, the goal is not to be not to be comprehensive here. And that that actually is also maybe in a way almost the same mistake we make with light is to try to like be totalizing and yeah, so I sort of rethought it a little bit more as like being impressionistic or making gestures or sort of like listing and accumulating and following almost sort of like a, an associative impulse, which is something I actually really learned like doing poetry <laughs> to more think of it as oh, kind yeah. of like a poetic movement rather than a, a real serious like comprehensive research task. That was really the only way I got through that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, could you say more about your background in poetry and I guess how it intersects with your, you know, even if it's on the if it's on the level of sentence or even just in terms of like form, how does it, you know, sort of shape your writing? Yeah, that's a really great question. Well, I don't I don't write a ton of poetry anymore. <laughs> um, but the number one thing that I sort of took with me from that world um, is this sort of way of animating an idea with like the engine of association. And kind of using that to like move through a series of ideas and images and using that energy as kind of a way to get to a certain kind of specificity. And um, yeah, like that's by no means the only thing that poetry does or the only way to write it. But it was always what I was most interested in and interested in as a writer and as a reader. And um, yeah, even though I don't spend a lot of time writing poetry anymore, that sort of way of moving is still kind of my default, I think. Um and then like, yeah, honestly, like if I thought that working in multiple genres or like moving between genres, if I thought it was something that 
uh, required like a certain kind of like confidence or hubris about it. Like, I don't think I'd be able to do it. And I think the only way I've even like moved from poetry into other things has sort of been by like keeping alive a kind of naive belief, I think, that like it's all just writing <laughs> and um, sort of protecting myself in a lot of ways from like the pressures of specialization. So like working in different genres, those differences between them, they don't really feel all that categorical to me. They feel like more like differences in like temperature or like weather or mood or even like darkness or brightness, you know, like um, they make these different things available and they kind of make you have different ideas or reach different conclusions, but they're sort of using the same tools. It's just like a different process to get there, if that makes sense. Yeah. In this whole welter of interpretations and dualities and images, which are the ones you find yourself returning to or thinking about? Like, do any of the religious interpretations of light and dark have a particular meaning for you? Well, there was a lot of religious content that didn't make it into the piece that was all kind of new to me, but that I sort of, I went down like one of the, one of the many research rabbit holes I went down that I didn't end up really capitalizing on were the sort of like Christian mystical traditions, <laughs> sort of like the dark night of the soul and the sort of facing, I guess, I guess broadly speaking, the thing that has stuck with me has, has been quite broad, just sort of this reversal in the idea that you know, we work maybe under the assumption that illumination brings a kind of clarity and that the idea that obscurity itself can be revelatory, that like mystery or the unknown or the unknowable can be itself a place of revelation, both in the sense that it sort of forces us into a kind of encounter with the self, but also that it forces us into an encounter with something that is so totalizingly beyond self and that's I mean I realize that's quite general but it's something that came up quite a lot in a lot of both sort of the philosophical and religious interpretations and I think the other thing that has stuck with me actually is just sort of a link between light and sort of like the mentality like a colonial mentality (laughs) like this idea that we've sort of like colonized the night and that like whatever whatever is is possible to you know, rapaciously consume or put our mark on or impose ourselves upon is like what we must do. And a real, like a sort of like deep reversal of that seems really fruitful and interesting to me. To cede control. Yeah. Yeah. That a lot of, yeah, I think that that's really it. It's like writing this essay, just thinking about how much of the light has been about control and about controlling our environment and And sometimes to really like important and fruitful and productive ends, like I don't want to just, you know, be like, and throw all of that away and never, you know, like, (laughs) like, like, your light bulbs. Exactly. Like clearly (laughs) light has a value, both a practical value and an aesthetic one, but just kind of like reframing how we think about the idea that just like, I don't know, it's so basic, but it's just like more is better has sort of been the default, I think, with light and like maybe not (laughs) so much. Well, and and especially with, you know, bringing it back to this issue of colonialism, it is sort of the default when coming to how cities are planned, how a uh, non-native population is spread across this country and sort of like how that was achieved and, and for what purpose. And again, it's it's coming back to this issue of like, well, you need the light so there can be part of the reason why we need the light 
not the only reason, is that we need to maximize production. We need to be productive for as many hours of the day as we possibly can. And at night, you can, well, now, especially because like Dolly Parton saying, that I keep going back to that Super Bowl ad. Oh my god, that was so disturbing. Five to one. I, I know, and it's like that movie. That movie's the exact opposite. Like that movie rules, and that song rules. I know. I, you know I, I mean that that mo- I mean, yeah, that 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 song and that movie was funded by the labor movement. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it is so dystopian. That is one of the most dystopian ads I've ever seen in my life. Right. I'll never be over that. <laughs> No, and and it's like, you know, love Dolly, but that was very, you know, the, and again, for people who are perhaps not familiar with this thing that is just shattering our souls, it was like an ad for one of those like uh, freelance sites where you just advertise your services and somebody hires you for the least amount of money possible, basically. And so, and then, you know, the idea is that, you know, you work nine to five and then you work five to nine, that you do what you really love in those hours before you go to bed. And it's like, well, that's, that sucks. That's the worst. First of all, that's the the worst. But again, it comes back to this idea of like our ideas of productivity and our ideas of light and, you know, the extension of the day keeps happening. Yes. Like the day keeps getting longer and longer and longer and maybe it shouldn't. Yeah. It probably should. Yeah. I mean, for environmental reasons and psychological reasons, all sorts of reasons. Yeah. Like the link, the link between light and commerce is, is really quite interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of scholars writing about this kind of thing and about, you know, descriptions of early paintings of factories lit up at night as sort of like an early image or symbol of what what light brought it brought the ability to to work continuously and to sort of extend yeah both our productivity and with it our consumption and uh yeah just like also extended the range of our like time in which we are conscious <laughs> and like the sort of like sl- the sleeplessness epidemic is all very tied to this light issue and yeah once you once you start picking away at light it gets its tentacles into many many different realms right yeah it's just one of those simple things that we take for granted that in fact it's like yeah you know cities which do have lots of light or rather in your piece you cite that sort of like some scientists want to argue that overexposure to light might be carcinogenic. Again, might be. Oh, yeah. And I mean, that's like not even really debatable, honestly. Like, it is. Like, it is a carcinogen, basically. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, and there's also higher rates of, you know, mental illness in cities. And again, there are a lot of different factors for that. But then also, one of them, probably this, this overexposure, this over not letting your mind be quiet when perhaps you should being exposed to light when you probably should rest. Yeah. It's an interesting thing when you start getting into kind of the science side of this of this research, which is starting to happen and there is quite a bit of it. It's relatively new, but yeah, it can be very hard to isolate light from other factors and in order to kind of like prove its its importance as a as a factor in these various kind of like health outcomes, you know, ecological outcomes, all that kind of thing, but there are people doing that work and increasingly Increasingly, it seems like, yeah, like every time you sort of turn on a light at night or open your computer, like you're doing something really quite harmful (laughs) to yourself. I find myself thinking about it a lot now. I'm really very aware of it. 
Yeah, and I mean, it has nothing to do with whether it's a blue light or whatever yeah. kind of. It's 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 just light. Yeah, like our, we're still animals. Yes, and there are so many things about modern life that it's like, well, you can think it up and think that it's fine, but actually, our like little, you know reptilian brain or a monkey brain can't handle it that's bad for that (laughs) yeah something one of the researchers i spoke to a like phrase he used that stuck with me was artificial light at night changes the environment into something for which no life on earth has evolved and that that (laughs) idea really (laughs) stayed stayed with me for sure and i mean you know, what we've been talking about reminds me of this part of the essay in which you write, quote, many other human generated problems are hard to picture, hard to measure, hard to hold in focus. The dark night, by contrast, is retrievable. Beyond the insomniac scrim cast up by human activity, the sky is still there in its pristine original condition, waiting to be witnessed, end quote. And you're right, because, you know, of all the things that humanity has ruined about our environment, our planet, our this ecosystem in which we live, night sky, you know, just turn out the lights. Yeah. But also, <laughs> it's like any other sort of issue related to climate or ecology in that it would take a huge shift yes. in consciousness to actually prioritize that. So I'm curious, you know, as you talked with about this with other people and since you've published the piece, how much of a hunger are you sensing for the return of night skies? And is it enough to kind of harness? Yeah, I think it could be. People would need to know that it was possible to do so. You know, like I think that there's a sort of two part, two parts to this. And one is sort of like the awareness element. And I do think that light pollution is getting talked about more and more. It feels like it's a little bit more in the culture. I don't know if that's just because I've been looking for it. But Someone who I spoke with at the International Dark Sky Association at one point said that he thinks that light could be the new microplastics, that this could sort of be the next focus of people's attention. But yeah, I I do think that there is a hunger for this, or there's certainly a hunger for the underlying thing that the night sky could offer us, which is, or just, you know, that a return to darkness could offer us. And just like, a, I think there's a hunger for a certain kind of like simplicity and in a very broad sense, a feeling of like a, a return and a clarity and a simplicity, like all of that, all of that stuff that I think we're seeing manifest in different ways, I think could very easily be focused on, on light and on the night sky if people knew that it was possible. So I do think that first element is just kind of the, yeah, even just the idea that like light pollution is like a relatively new term. At some point while I was writing this, I used the term light pollution. Um, I was talking to my dad and I used the term light pollution. He was like, oh, what an interesting concept. And I was like, I, I didn't make up the idea of light pollution. Like <laughs> that's a, that's just a thing. But, you know, it, it did clue me in a little bit to the idea that it's not, I don't know, maybe not totally intuitive or not, um, or yeah, just how new it is. Yeah. And then there's also like in all of this, like there's a, there's a version of this piece that I didn't write that could have really just mostly been about like practical things, <laughs> like, you know, like the, the policy and, and the technology and the steps and the things that would need to happen in order to make that what you sort of described rightly as this both very big and very small shift. Like it's a small thing. The sky is still there. It's still available but the the cultural shift that would need to take place in order to retrieve it is extremely complicated, even if the technological solutions are not, you know, like it's not actually that complicated. 
yeah, it's both sort of the hardest and the easiest problem to solve. And one sort of pet theory of mine is that if we could sort of rally together and make like light the thing that we decided to fix, I feel like maybe that would just be really like good for humanity to like get a win. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Oh, like, hey. Just prove you can do it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That if we, like, take a certain kind of collective action that we can fix one of these, you know, many, like, far more intractable problems that might, I don't know, I think that that might make, like, solving climate change feel more doable, (laughs) you know, to be like, oh, like, we can can make do with less. Like, we can address an issue, (laughs) make do with less, and learn to live like in a certain yeah it could be the sort of like training ground we could like learn to live in a different kind of relationship to what we use and how we live but that's a pretty big thing I think but I don't know yeah sort of yeah one, one of my theories is that this could kind of be the like gateway drug that gets us hooked on doing better yeah I mean and also obviously part of making the night dark again would be address you know issues like energy use and yeah. other like things things that are attendant to again because I, I think as your your essay really beautifully illustrates it's like you know you, we can talk about a specific thing you can talk about the light you can talk about the dark and yet it's so interconnected to everything else that it's hard to you can separate it out but it, you always have to take it you have to take this holistic view and that these things things are working together in ways that we don't always realize because we take them so for granted. But I guess, you know, you said that, and you're totally right, there's a different version of this essay you could have written that is sort of a more expository version, a less sort of like philosophical, artistic version. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously this is Harper's. It's a sort of like the this is our wheelhouse. Yeah. I mean, that that's the sort of thing we specialize in. But why did you, in choosing an approach, how did you sort of strike that balance between those two things? Because again, there's so much out there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I will give a lot of credit right now to my editor who gave me very much like the permission that I, I really needed to take this in a like more pure essay direction. Like I was feeling sort of, I was early days feeling like a lot more beholden to what I had proposed or what I had pitched or what, like something a little bit more, yeah, that little, uh, slightly more practical journalistic piece. And yeah, Matt was sort of like, you know, you can go weird. <laughs> like, <laughs> and, and I really needed to be like shoved a little bit, but once I was given that space, I was like, oh, this is this is way better for me. Like, I'm not a journalist. Like, I don't really know what I'm doing when I work in more actual, like, reported feature spaces. I'm really always, like, feeling my way through that and feeling like I'm making it up as I go along. So, yeah, being given that permission to just be like, what are the ways that this feels? <laughs> you know, like, what what does this, like, mean in a kind of, like, almost, like, phenomenological way? Like, how does how does light and dark sit with us? Like, what has it been for us in the past? What is it now? What could it be in the future? And to use some of those more practical questions to have that sort of in there and to have those questions in there, but to not try to like make an argument for 
light as the test case to solve climate change, which I did verbally right. just now, but you know, maybe don't <laughs> don't have the background to make that case in writing. I, yeah, I didn't I didn't argue with it, you enough on that. <laughs> But I do encourage someone out there, I encourage like the, you know, the science writers to write that piece and the policy writers. Just think about it. Just yeah. entertain the idea. That's all. Again, that's what that's what essays are for. Just generate thoughts. It's fine. It's free. It doesn't cost you anything. It, it's a, as long as there are ideas, they don't harm anybody necessarily. Just think about it. I, lo- I love that, by the way, as a framing of an essay that doesn't, you know, it doesn't harm <laughs> anybody. I'm just throwing it out there. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess elements of your essay reminded me of the wonderful and terrifying Annie Dillard essay, mm-hmm. uh, which is Total Eclipse, mm-hmm. which also takes an experience of extreme darkness, in that case, an eclipse, of, of course, and it renders it in all its threatening and destabilizing strangeness. And I just thought I'd have asked if you've read that essay and oh, whether yeah. it had any part in your thinking as you were writing this or whether you gave any thought while writing to eclipses as these forests but celebrated sort of collectively sanitized experiences of the darkness. Well, that's a lovely way of putting that, collectively sanitized experiences of the darkness. Yes, that essay was definitely an influence on this piece. And once again, I'm going to shout out my editor who, you know, (laughs) I, I handed in an early version of this piece where, again, I was like trying to write a certain kind of reported piece that I'm not really terribly suited to write. And in that piece, it had sections and elements that were what has wound up being sort of the bulk of the final piece. And yeah, my my editor was like, again, you know, go weird and brought that Annie Dillard essay, which of course I'd encountered before, but brought it back to my attention. I hadn't read it in many years. And I was like, oh, yeah, he was sort of like using that a little bit as the the vibe he was giving me permission to hit and so yeah I think he'll be he'll be thrilled that you picked up on that yeah definitely an influence and just a wonderful a wonderful essay that I think really highlights like the ways that sometimes these kinds of experiences and these sort of natural phenomena really put us into various kinds of encounters with death and with time and the malleability of time and mortality and just sort of those those much bigger questions that can be kind of like focalized through sensory experience, whether that's a private one or a collective one or some combination of the two. And at the end of one section, you write, quote, the lit world may be the one we crave, but there are things we need from the dark. So have you found yourself returning to dark places since this experience in Saskatchewan? And how dark are the skies where you live now? I know you just moved. Yeah, I've, I mean, I've been moving every like eight to 12 months for five and a half years. So, oh my God, I know it's the worst. <laughs> Don't recommend that. Yeah, it's been bonkers. So I've moved across the country, I think twice during the writing of this piece, I'm pretty sure, or like somewhere in there. Uh, hard, Hard to know when to start counting that I started writing this. But so... Right now I live in um, Vancouver, British Columbia, and the skies are not terribly dark. It's an urban center. And I also haven't, I mean, so no, I haven't returned to dark places. I also, you know, don't, I don't go anywhere still. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I don't travel. The only, the only traveling I've done in the last two and a half years has been for this piece and to move. <laughs> so I don't go places. So I haven't. I don't know if this, I mean, it's a sort of, 
I, I started getting interested in dark skies and kind of like doing the preliminary work that would eventually become this piece like several years ago now. Like I first sort of discovered the idea of a dark sky place now a few years ago and several moves ago. And at one point in all of these moves, I was living on an island in British Columbia called Quadra Island uh, where there are no streetlights. And it, it, it really is a dark place. And so early days in the kind of the percolating of this piece, I was, I was living in a very dark place and the idea of darkness felt really like immediate and personal. And I don't know, has it satisfied a curiosity or only whetted it? I think it satisfied something that I was looking for, but I would say it's only whetted, maybe not darkness specifically, but just an interest in putting myself into position, more positions of like unknowing and like staying with the unknown and sitting with something unknown and being okay with that. (laughs) Maybe that's something I think I want to bring into my life more and have been bringing into my life more. But it did. It satisfied something. It hit. It it scratched some kind of itch, or it answered a. It answered some kind of question. I think I don't know. And uh, now the hard question. Okay. Is light the absence of dark, or is dark the absence of light? And you you have to pick a side. Okay. Wait. Okay. Let me think about this to make sure I get it right. <laughs> is dark the absence of light, or is light the absence of dark? Well, I think we've been behaving one way <laughs> and w- <laughs> one one thing that sort of the the dark skies movement sort of asks us to do is to reframe that. There's actually um, one of the people I spoke to is a researcher who does all of this work on designing for darkness and approaching that from a specifically moral framework <laughs> and sort of getting into kind of this like where environmental design and philosophy kind of meet up with one another and talking about the idea that darkness has its own, essentially like that darkness has its own value in and of itself, not merely as the absence of light. And when you really internalize that idea, what kinds of design decisions you might make (laughs) change. Mm. So that's a cool thing (laughs) someone else is doing. But which is it? Do I have to choose? (laughs) I'm a Libra. I can't. (laughs) I couldn't possibly. This is, hey, this is an anti-astrology podcast. It's satanic. Just (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. Speaking of the stars and the night Mm -hmm. sky. I know, exactly, right? Of course. Of course. Well, what are you, what are you working on next? Um, Yeah, well, I'm just wrapping up, like I'm just finishing up a little bit of contract work doing teaching. Um, I'm a sessional contract instructor, um, teaching creative writing, that sort of like that term just kind of ended more or less now. Um, so for the next couple of months, I'm mostly working on the final edits of my first novel, uh, which is called Quality Time. And that book will be coming out in Canada next spring with McClellan and Stewart. Um, and in the very near future, we'll be looking for an American publisher. So, you know, I'll just throw that out into the universe. Um, but yeah, moving into fiction and uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's funny, it, it has nothing to do with the Dark Skies piece, but now that I think about it, I did actually write like a, a scene into it where a character kind of contemplates the fact that they might never see the stars again. And like, I sort of gave someone some of my own um, darkness anxiety. So the fact that I was working on these things concurrently kind of made its way in. Well, thank you so much. 
for this conversation and your really lovely essay. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Harper's Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. The New York Times has called us America's most interesting magazine. Receive elegant, insightful, and wry writing from the best journalists, essayists, critics, novelists, and poets every month in our print magazine, and gain access to our digital archive, which stretches back to 1850. Visit harpers.org save to subscribe for only 1697.